So I apologize that last week's class was not properly advertised. Um, and we do not have class next week or the week after because of Passover. And then we continue after Passover. So, um, what are we continuing with? Do you know? What are we continuing with? The theme is the spring Jewish holidays. We're still doing that after yeah. Passover. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to study the Omer and Lagba Omer and Shavuot, and we're just going to be covering all the spring Jewish holidays. Um, uh, I, I was looking online at a site called jewishfreeware.com and a rabbi there, whose name I'm forgetting, um, has put together an anthology, it's, not a, it's, it's, it's all virtual, so he can add as many stuff as he wants, of every single Passover song he's ever collected. There were like 300 of them. This song's called Don't Sit on the Afikomen. You know that one? My dad at every... Welcome, welcome. Hi, Stephen. Here, here's a couple more if you need. Um, and would you pass this down so they have an extra? Yeah, here's another. Uh, Joy, would you give that to uh, Ruth, please? Anybody else need a Haggadah? Okay. This one, don't sit on the afikomen. My dad at every Seder breaks a matzah piece in two and hides the afikomen half a game for me and you. Find it, hold it, ransom for the Seder isn't through till the afikomen's gone. Don't sit on the afikomen. Don't sit on the afikomen. Don't sit on the afikomen or the meal will last all night. Uh, it, it, I'll read you the rest of the verses. One year, Daddy hid it neath the pillow on a chair, but just as I raced over my aunt Sophie sat down there. She threw, she threw herself upon it. Awful crunching filled the air, and crumbs threw all flew all around. Don't sit on the afikomen. Don't sit on the afikomen. Don't sit on the afikomen, nor the meal will last all night. There were matzah crumbs all over. Oh, it was a messy sight. We swept up all the pieces, though it took us half the night. So if you want your Seder ending sooner than dawn's light, don't sit on the afikomen. <laughs> a good one. Your sister used that? Elijah, I just saw the prophet Elijah. And suddenly that name will never be the same to me, Elijah. He came to our Seder, Elijah. He had his, well, I, I didn't figure this out. He had his cup of wine, but could not stay to dine this year. Elijah, for your message, all Jews are waiting, that the times come for peace and not hating. Elijah, next year we'll be waiting, Elijah. Isn't that nice? This is like 300 of them. What's the name of the website? Jewish Freeware, jewishfreeware.com. I think it was com, maybe org. I bet it's org, because it's free. Jew just Google Jewish freeware, and it'll come up. And there's all kinds of stuff on it that people have wanted to share. 
Just a tad of charoset helps the bitter herbs go down. The bitter herbs go down, the bitter herbs go down. Just a tad of charoset helps the bitter herbs go down in the most disguising way. <laughs> oh, back in Egypt long ago, the Jews were slaves under Pharaoh. They sweat and toiled and labored through the day. So when we gather Pesach night, we do what we think right. Maror, we chew to feel what they went through. <laughs> This is another good one. Um, while the maror is being passed, we each refill our water glass, preparing for the taste that turns us red. Although maror seems full of minuses, it sure does clear our sinuses. But what to do? It's hard to be a Jew. Just a tad of haroset. Isn't that cute? I was having so much fun. I'm gonna. No, no, it's one person who collected a zillion of them. Um, anyway, so I'm, you could, you could just send it to this guy. Yeah, it, you'll see, you'll see, jewishfreeware.com. So I, I thought I'd start by sharing that. So when we do our community Seder a week from Saturday night, I'm incorporating some of these songs into our Seder. They're so cute. Put Great. this on my, my, my resource list. Yes, put it on your Jewish freeware. Hi, Laura. Yeah. Is that the URL? Jewish freeware. Yeah. .org or something uh, like that. Something. But once you know how Google works, you just put it in. Uh -huh. It's not here. I'm looking at the title. Of you have it. Here, um, Laura, would you take one of these and give one to Kathy, too? And if any more people come, we'll have to share. I figured that in preparation for Passover, it's always important to study the Haggadah in advance so that we're primed. We looked at Ira and Mordechai Kaplan and um, Eugene Cohn's Haggadah last week, the one which came out in 1941. Uh, and again, I apologize that there was confusion over whether there was class last week. It was circumstances beyond my control. Um, but uh, this is the one that I have multiple copies of. So I brought them from my house so we could all look at the same text. And that's why we have this one here. So a couple of words of review, because uh, Martha, for example, was wondering again about the origins of the Seder. And we talked about it last week, but I think it bears repeating. We were looking last week at the evolution of Passover, how we're still telling the same story but that the form in which we tell it, the, 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 the structure of the holiday is so different completely than is described in the Torah, where there's no four cups of wine, there's no lengthy meal. It says actually in the Torah, you shall eat it hurriedly with your loins girded and your staff in your hand and your sandals on your feet. And so how did that become the leisurely night-long you know, meal. And we were talking about that last week. In the Roman period, when Greek culture was the uh, currency of the ancient world around the Mediterranean, uh, the Greeks had a, had a feast and called a symposium. And it was a structured dinner <coughs> in which you drank four cups of wine, this is like one of the best documented pieces. This is not like, uh, this is not like um, 
fake history, you know. It's like we actually, we actually know enough to understand this. Uh, so I hope you don't mind if I'm repeating something from last time. Um, in the symposium, there were four cups of wine that were served. There were hors d'oeuvres that were dipped, that you dipped things into. Um, there was a topic for discussion. And it was a learning meal. It was called a symposium. Hmm. And the rabbis decided, whoever, they, whoever these geniuses were, they decided, this is the meal of the free Romans. Right? Let's adapt this form to our Feast of Fr Festival of Freedom. And I think they did it as a form of resistance, as a form of ironic commentary on the dominant society that was crushing them at the time. We're going to have a symposium, and we're going to tell a story about how we were slaves and became free, and we're going to teach that to our children. So, right? So, yes? So this, the symposium has Greek origins. Greek origins. But then the Romans adopted it? Too? Yes. Okay. Yes, the Romans basically co-opted Greek culture. What do you want to say about that, and Toya? It's, it's very important because it's, the Romans, please. the Romans have endless plays about slaves and freemen. I, I've actually gone to hear them in Italy. Uh, they're still playing. Mm. Tell us a little about that. Uh, I didn't know that. It is amazing to go see any of the comedies of any of the Roman. Uh, playwrights. Something and there are many exciting. Of them. Yes. Something. And they're just, they're just amazing. And one of the things you notice while seeing these plays, you see them in amphitheaters, open air, they're just beautiful and they're funny. Even if, I mean, I know a little Latin, but you know, they're translated and sometimes they show it in Italian and stuff, but always mm -hmm. with Latin. You can't believe what you see visually. The slave is always running walking quickly, it's as if it were his or her being that they run quickly to the master's uh -huh. and the others are not. The others are taking their time. There is even an entire aesthetic, an entire aesthetic depending upon how you treat yourself and time. So this has got a very heavy serious, both psychological, spiritual, and social underpinning. So when you said that... That's right. So why on this night do we recline, mm -hmm. when on all other nights we don't recline? The custom of Roman freedmen was they, they could recline on couches while the servants stood over them and served them. And you have time to both think and feel like a human being. You're not always attracted or attached to the energy of doing, mm -hmm. of making something happen for others or for yourself. You have this leisure, but it's more than leisure. It's like almost you're right as a human. It's That's like right. when I see birds sleeping on branches. They're feeding and they take time. Mm -hmm. They actually fall asleep, birds, for five, six minutes. And that's the belief in how to be a human. Shabbat. So picture the Romans, it, picture the Jews in the Roman era adapting their story to their circumstance. And then think about uh, the, most, the most vivid example we know in American history is the African Americans naming Harriet Tubman Moses. 
right, and oh, telling, yeah. and telling their story. So it's, so again, as I said last week, the rabbis put in this key paragraph in the Haggadah, and since we have the text, I think we can look at it for starters. And again, we talked about it last time, but you can't talk about this too much, actually. Uh, turn to page. Um, um, okay, that's just my home. Uh, I'm I'm slave to that. Um, who I'm picking up when? Okay. Um, I'm okay. First, look at page forty-six. So this is set up as a pedagogical meal. So. This paragraph is at the beginning of the telling. Anyone want to read the English where it says we were slaves? We would like to, like to read. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. The Eternal One, our God, brought us out from there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Had God not taken our ancestors out of Egypt, then we and our children and our children's children would still be enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. <coughs> and even if all of us were wise scholars, all of us were sages, all of us were experienced in the ways of the world, mm. all knowledgeable in Torah, it would still be our responsibility mm. to tell about the exodus from Egypt. Whoever this is the key line. Go ahead, Ruth. Whoever expands upon the story of the exodus from Egypt is worthy of praise. Whoever expands on the story is worthy of praise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the rabbis are giving themselves instructions, right? And they are speaking in an era when they have, they are in a society. The rabbis have, now, now rabbinic Judaism the rabbi, the, it's still permissible to hold slaves as if, you're a, if you're a Judean, if you're a Jew. However, the Torah has laid out very strict rules about what inhuman and inhumane treatment is because the, the Jew, Jewish law recognizes slaves as human beings. Right? So it's, it's not like, I mean, if you think about it, there's still, the United States only abolished slavery 150 years ago, right? So, it's not like, oh, how could they have had slaves? It's like, how, could, how come there are tens of millions of people enslaved in the world today? It's like, so it's not about that. It's about that Judaism enshrined the principle that every human being is made in God's image, Jews or Gentile. And therefore, when you study the laws of how slaves are to be treated, they can't be treated ruthlessly in the Torah, and they are recognized as human beings. That is not how it was for the Roman Empire, right? The, the, there, were no, there, were no, there was no acknowledgement of human value attached to slaves, as far as I know, in the Roman Empire. Is, it a, is that a fair or unfair? Well, it's not Please. blanket. It's not because blanket. Of course it's not blanket. I've read lots of literature in which the slave is actually running the show in another way and actually understands better, knows better, so therefore are like considered human beings like people writing about them. Well, but that's, so the literature of the oppressed mm. and the experience of the oppressed 
whether it is, and I don't, I'm not using like capital letters, yeah. uh, whether it's a woman and the guy thinks he's in charge, right? right. right? But the woman in her, in her socially less powerful status actually, because the, because the less enfranchised person has to learn every nuance of the master's behavior so that they can uh, um, function with some you know, autonomy. Whereas the person who has the power essentially gets stupid. Um, and that's the story of Pharaoh. It's the whole I love Lucy. It's, exactly. Right. I love Lucy. Oh, she was so stopping from the bottom. Um, but uh, so there's a lot of literature, uh, a lot of scholarly stuff been written about how, you know, think about African-Americans and how the slaves knew their master and knew how, what, how to manipulate within their very limited means. This is classic stuff. Just like the kid knows how to manipulate the parent who's really in charge here, right? Uh, who, is the, per the person in power does have the power, and if they are an abuser of power, will abuse it. But power also makes people stupid. That's the story, and that's the story of Exodus. When Pharaoh says, and again, forgive me for, for you know, saying this over and again, but when Pharaoh says to the Hebrew midwife, go, and when you get to the birth stool, if it's a boy, kill it, and if it's a girl, let it live. The midwives won't do that because they feared God, it says. What does it mean to fear God? It's like they don't fear Pharaoh. They, they're, serving, they're midwives, for God's sakes. They're serving the creator, right? And they're not going to kill the babies they deliver. How stupid can Pharaoh be? And then they, when Pharaoh learns that the Hebrew children are still, boys are still being uh, uh, birthed alive, he calls the midwives to him and he says, what's going on? And they say... Those Hebrew women are chayot. Mm -hmm. They're animals. Before we can get there, they've already given birth and hidden the baby away. Pharaoh believes them. Why? Because he thinks they are animals. Right? He's already categorized them. And the women, midwives, know exactly how to speak his language. Right? This, is how the, this is what's called the language of the oppressed. Right? You know just what to say, yes, Massa. You know just how to say it so that the powerful one, under uh, limited grasp of reality, is reinforced, and you can go about your business always at the risk of getting killed. It's not like the powerless are, are uh, not in danger, mm -hmm. but they, they don't lose their humanness. Um, and that's all. Do you want to ask something? Please do. Please do. The, um, if you look at it on all the levels, if you take a look at it philosophically, what it's saying is that philosophically, we are looking at a number of laws at one time. And philosophically, there is the idea that nature, animals, the, the great chain of being is actually a chain of being. And that actually... It is really that. It is not really only there. It's not just a... Because a, mm -hmm. in it, God has existed in all of the beings of the chain. So philosophically, when you look at a person who's taking care of themselves, it isn't only socially and politically, it's also in a deep philosophic spiritual way because they're saying there's nature and nature is 
primarily spiritual in God and just nature. So that if you can see that, you've got the possibility of seeing the human in all these things and the, and the, and the rights of all things. Mm-hmm. Because even the most powerful is going to be feeding the flowers one day, no matter what mm-hmm. the Egyptians tried to do to mummify and mm-hmm. bury them with their wealth and imagine an afterlife. Uh, or any, and I'm not, I'm not picking on the Egyptians. I'm just like, we all, this is what we all do. You can't take it with you, right? And, uh, uh, and so someone who fears God in the language of the Bible, like the midwives, midwives are a perfect example. They see life come into the world. They also see life depart. They are in service of life. Mm-hmm. That's why I define yod Vavhe as life unfolding. Uh-huh. That's why I like that name, the, un- the unpronounceable name of God in Torah. So if you serve life unfolding, but Pharaoh says, I don't know yod Vavhe. Moses says, yod Vavhe says, let my people go that they might serve me. Mm-hmm. Me, life unfolding. Moses is the spokesperson. Pharaoh says, I don't know yod and I will not let the people go. That's his answer. Mm-hmm. Pretty clear. Uh, and uh, that's the way I read the, the story. If you don't know yod if you're not intimate, if you're not ready to revere that and serve that, then what else are you going to serve? You're going to serve your own, uh, your own selfish purposes. Um, so uh, here's this timeless story. And the rabbis, and I love speculating on this because they never say exactly, they, there's no rabbinic op-ed piece from the time saying why we make the Passover Seder this way. You know, to, you know uh, uh, but I love speculating how they took this Roman freeman form and made it into our feast. Um, well, I'm sorry if you went over this. No, we're just talking about it again. It's okay. okay. Um, but I, you know, we're, we live in an age of Marxist Haggadahs and feminist and children's and every kind of Haggadah. But it's my impression that this is a fairly recent phenomenon. Ah, uh, yes. Like, um, so is it, um, and that Iris was one of the first? In yes. Okay. So we, uh, we, so, and is it an American phenomenon? Uh, okay, so let me back up and we'll okay. get to that and repeat what we said about that last time. I don't mind repeating it. Thank you. Um, so... One of the key features, as I said last time, about the Haggadah is this idea, this thing called the afikomen. Yes. Afikomen is a Greek word, epikomenos, or something like that, which means after the meal. And the Haggadah has this odd phrase in it. Do not end the meal with afikomen. Right? It's in, we'll, we'll, I will find it in Nagata, but that's what it says. It's very strange. You don't end the meal with afikomen. Well, what the heck is that? Why is the afikomen? It is what we do end the meal with, isn't it? Mm. So apparently, from what people know about the symposium, after the meal, they would go out bar hopping or partying or they'd get plastered or whatever they do. It was time for revelry. And uh, the rabbi specifically said, don't end the Seder with that custom. And instead, they instituted that you should taste the matzah as the last thing you taste 
on your Seder night. Somehow, as far as I can tell, somewhere along the way, the word afikomen got associated with that piece of matzah. And that piece of matzah actually is the replacement for the epikomenos. Specifically, in my opinion, a, a cutting commentary on what the rabbis saw as the excesses of Roman life um, among the upper classes. Um, and uh, so afikomen is a Greek word. It means what ha- that whatever this is after the meal. And it says in our Haggadah, the rabbis say, don't end the meal with afikomen. But then the piece of matzah that they replace it with becomes known as the afikomen. I've always, I, until someone explained that to me, I was always very confused by that line in the Haggadah. Um, so one of the questions I always have is when the rabbis in B'nai Brak, in that famous passage in the Haggadah, spend all night discussing the Exodus until their, their students have to come in and say, Rabbis, it's time for the morning Shema. Are they showing how this is what you do on, a night of, on this kind of night in a leisurely extended way? Are they saying that we are actually being subversive and discussing our liberation from Roman rule on such a night? There, again, because, the, because rabbinic literature is the way it is, it just tells us stories mostly and doesn't tell us exact, doesn't have like the why. So we're left to speculate. Uh, yeah, what do you think? That's like the story itself. Whoever receives it gets it where they are consciously. Right. And so they're so smart to make it something that those who want to continue will continue. Those who say, this is it, it's over. But look at what happens when you do continue it. It's a genius, piece of genius. The, um, the, the rabbis take the, the, <coughs> sim, the um, activities of the symposium and they assign new symbolisms to them. Mm-hmm. The four cups of wine become four cups of liberation. The dipping of the hors d'oeuvres becomes symbolic of the tears of slavery, or the and they take everything and they they re they reframe uh, it, um, which is really amazing. Um, and then in the telling, if you look at page uh, seventy. So page 46 is when they're introducing the telling of the story. And they say, everyone who expands upon this story is worthy of praise. Then if you looked at page 70, it says, in every generation, each individual should feel personally redeemed from Egypt. As it is said, you shall explain to your child on that day, it is because of what the Eternal One did for me, when I went free from Egypt. For God redeemed not only our ancestors, God redeemed us with them. And so the, this, this, set, this all frames the telling of the story um, as a telling that's about us and our children now in every generation. Uh, I never get tired of revisiting, um, revisiting that. Um, I was explaining last week uh, that um, the text of the Haggadah is not fixed in the Talmud. In fact, things like the four questions 
<laughs> that eventually become fixed are in fact examples of a variety of questions that appear in the Talmud. Only over centuries does it become the firkashas, you know, the four questions. Um, actually, these are four examples of questions to get children into an inquisitive mode. And the Talmud lists other ways that Rebbe so-and-so used to do X in order to get the children to stay awake. Or Rebbe so-and-so used to... And there's all this stuff in the Talmud. Uh, Joan? Well, um, is that why they've sort of um, instituted the question and answer and discussion? You know, in other words, we've kind of gotten stuck with the language as if it is biblical or, you know, right. as, as, as if it is a Bible. Um, but they, maybe they incorporate the questions to kind of poke a hole in that because they know we, we tend to get routinized That's right. in our recitation. It's not meant to be routinized. Um, but where does the Talmud actually, the Talmud actually declares that it should not be fixed? No, it doesn't declare that it should not be fixed. It's, give, it's giving examples. So you put your, hist, his, put your historical hat on. The Talmud is maybe is the 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th century. By the Middle Ages, the text has become fixed. In other words, that's the nature of things, right? Over time, things get fixed. And the original intent is apt to be forgotten. So that you can find yourself reading, and everyone who expands upon the story is worthy of praise, and then go on to the next line without having any, any sense that you're actually reading an instruction. Right? And that's what happens. It's human nature. So, a beautiful thing happened in the 20th century, which was modernity punctures all of this. Modernity says, nothing is sacred. Let's take it apart and put it back together again. And an opportunity arises for those who would take it to re-infuse this with currency. And um, even though the rote recitation of the Gada and the fulfillment of the rituals is not empty. No. It's filled with meaning because you're doing it generation to generation. You're telling the story. You're, in other words, it's not a meaningless ritual or would have died out a long time ago. But in the modern era, that's not enough for many people. Uh, why should we just say these words, right? Who said that when you were younger? You know, we all did. Uh, who had a hand up? Joan? Uh, uh, Ruth? Jonathan, you're saying that before Ira did his, pretty much everybody used the same... Uh, yes, okay. yes. So which was... Like so, the, in 1941, 40 and 41, Ira... Uh, Mordechai Kepler. Well, they were a trio. Um, in 1940-41, before that, as far, there, there may have, the reform movement may have come out with variations on the Haggadah, but, but this is the... There was one Haggadah before that. There was one Haggadah, the one that you know as the Maxwell House Haggadah, right? <laughs> that's, that's the Haggadah text, right? How, and only in, only in 1940 and 41, Mordechai Kaplan, a radical, radical guy, says, wait a minute, this isn't speaking to modern young Jews in America. And he and his two, um, um, not colleagues, but... Associates, Ira Eisenstein, Rabbi Ira Eisenstein, and Rabbi Eugene Cohn, would sit and th they rewrote the Haggadah. 
and they published it. And, and, and as I said last time, Eugene Cohn's son, Aaron Cohn, who was a beloved member of our congregation, and his wife Ruby, and Ira Eisenstein was a beloved member of our congregation with his wife Judy. So it's amazing how close we are connected to this. They wrote what they called the New Haggadah, which came out in 1941, still in print, a bestseller. I read excerpts from it last week. It's vividly meaningful still. Yes, the different types of slavery. How they talk about the different types of slavery, not just, not just political enslavement or physical bondage, but also psychological enslavement. And, uh, you know, we take that for granted now, but, um, and, and the rabbis also allude to these kinds of things, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute, but it, their goal was to restate it in a way that would make it accessible again. Since then, there are hundreds and hundreds of new Haggadahs. As I said last time, there's even a site called Haggadot.com, which has this amazing template. It's a new site. It's not been around a long time, mm -hmm. where you can construct your own Haggadah from hundreds of alternatives. <laughs> right? What do they all have in common? The story. The story and the Seder. The order. The ritual, the actual ritual. The actual ritual, right? And some of them add new rituals. Some of the, but what keeps it a Seder is the actual Seder, which means the order of ritual, and the story. And within that, there's been an unbelievably flourishing of creativity in the last, now it's 75 years, since Ira and uh, uh, Mordechai Kaplan and Jean Cohn um, put out their first Haggadah, which, as I explained last time, was met with unbelievable vitriol. Sure. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine? Mm -hmm. They're changing it. Now, there are websites, yeah. you know, where you have like four, 40 different possibilities. Yeah. Uh, yes, and there was also... So, am I understanding that you are saying that somewhere in this unconscious pool of the rabbis, they realized that it was important to expand on the story, and they knew that not that they knew how it would be expanded on, but they sanctioned it? Uh, they sanctioned it, yes. And that is the typical rabbinic so, approach to, to Torah, which is that you don't say you're doing it because then you'd be, so, you'd be controverting the Torah, uh -huh. but you do it anyway. Uh -huh. And then you say, we're just doing what it says in the Torah. And as far as I can tell, I wouldn't call it unconscious. My current, current uh, sense at this stage of my study of rabbinic Judaism is that they had an ironic awareness of what they were doing and that we're selling them short if we don't think so. As I've talked about in here, there are enough rabbinic stories where somebody's kind of like poking at it, saying the most famous one being when God, they outvote God and then God is laughing about it. Right. Uh -huh. um, there's enough stories like that that lets me think that the rabbis had self-awareness about how radical they were being, and they needed to be radical. Remember? They're in an unprecedented situation where um, uh, they have to reinvent Judaism, and that's why so much interest in the first century in our class on Judaism and Christianity laid all that out, because of the 
immense changes that were going on in the world at that time is something we experience in the modern era too. And so because, because you can take your ancestral heroes and make them into basically anything you want mm -hmm. to serve you, mm. I can take the ancient rabbis mm -hmm. and say, see how they reinvented Judaism in their era? I need to do that in mine. So would you kind of make a comparison between that and the founding fathers with the Constitution? That's a good question. Uh, um, I don't know. I do know that the founding fathers identified deeply with the Hebrews mm -hmm. uh, and uh, throwing off the yoke of tyranny. Mm -hmm. You know, they, yeah. the Bible was their book. Right, right. So they certainly self-consciously uh, modeled themselves as uh, children of Israel and but identified also with Also in terms of expanding on it, knowing that it, it couldn't stay exactly static because other stuff was going to get invented and happen. So, the it's, framework it's, for it's, it, the framework, I, you know, I'm not an expert in this. Mm -hmm. I think it's difficult, it's, a, it's an apt comparison, but a difficult comparison because the, the, the Founding Fathers were at the cusp of modernity mm -hmm. and they were willing to say new things and create a new way of doing things. Right. And the rabbis in antiquity, that's not the way they talked. Mm -hmm. um, but they did it anyway. But they did it. Um, so, Make a great play, I think. <laughs> uh, yes. So the novel, again, to read, that I think does such a beautiful job of this, is called As a Driven Leaf. Mm -hmm. Because uh, it was written by Milton Steinberg, who was the fourth yeah. of, it was Mordechai Kaplan and his three main disciples. Rabbi Milton Steinberg, Rabbi Ira Eisenstein, and Rabbi Eugene Cohn. They worked on all... Milton didn't, isn't named in the Haggadah, but he worked on all this new liturgy with them. They were like the uh, think tank of the Reconstructionist, uh, early Reconstructionist yeah. projects. And Milton Steinberg wrote um, a novel called As a Driven Leaf, which is about this period. And he uh, was... It's, it's really a good novel. Even It's written in 1939, and it's still a good novel. Yes, uh, um, so, yes Amy? Um, I just wanted to um, um, mark on one of the side commentaries. Um, yes, what page are you on? I'm on 70. Page 70. Yeah, where, where you... Yes, you yes, I just want people to get there. Yeah, um, and I just thought this was a very um, profound... Uh, phrasing here, because uh, what he says is this paragraph in every generation. Is oh, it's a uh, Toba. It's a woman, uh, Rabbi oh, Toba Spitzer. Yeah. A woman, uh, is the heart of the Seder, and to my mind, the heart of Judaism. Mm. We are committed, c commanded to find ourselves within the story and to make the story our own. And that, I mean, I, and, and to keep, and you read. The, read the whole thing. Oh, okay. Um, slavery happened to each of us. Redemption happened to each of us. The message of hope at the core of the story, the reality of the possibility of liberation in the midst of slavery, is the gift we bring to a world broken by the continual oppressions that human beings inflict upon one another. It is from this awareness of the possibility of transformation that we come to the next point in the Seder, to singing a new song before God. By weaving our own stories of oppression and liberation into this master story, each of us renews the message of hope in our own generation. By realizing our place in the ancient story, we are moved to sing a new song, a new way of understanding slavery and freedom, and of what it means to exalt the one. 
Beautiful, huh? Rabbi Toba Spitzer is the rabbi of Dorshit Zedek in Newton, Mass. She's a dear colleague of mine and one of the most articulate and brilliant rabbis I know. So her name Toba Spitzer. You know, she, whenever, I always say whenever she writes something online in our rabbinic listserv, I just write like ditto or I couldn't say it better. You know, she's that kind of person. She's marvelous. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So at the end of the telling, the traditional language is here. First, you, fin- you finish Dayenu, which is kind of like the, mm-hmm. you know, we be- and then there's this celebratory language on page 70. In every generation, each individual should feel personally redeemed from Egypt. The, this is the paragraph that we read. As it is said, you shall explain to your child on that day, it is because of what the Eternal One did for me when I went, me, when I went free from Egypt. For God redeemed not only our ancestors, God redeemed us with them. As it is said, God freed us from there, that God might take us and give us the land that God had promised on oath to our ancestors. Lift the cup, right? That's what it says. Therefore, we should revere, adore, glorify, and praise the one who performed all these miracles for our ancestors and for us. God took us from slavery to freedom, from sorrow to happiness, from mourning to redemption, from darkness to great light, from slavery to redemption, V'nomar lefanav shira chadasha. Let us sing before God a new song. Hallelujah. Isn't that a great way to end the telling? Now, but look on page 71. This is an example of a modern Haggadah. Uh, Michael Strassfeld and Joy Levitt, who edited this, this is the reconstruction of Haggadah from 19... I always forget. 2000? From the year 2000. Ira, uh, Mordechai Kaplan's was from 1940. So in 2000, a new one came out. And they decided to add a paragraph to the traditional Haggadah. And they did it in a brilliant way. They took, they used rabbinic Hebrew and quotes from the Torah. But they made a new paragraph. Does that make sense? Do you, I love that. I love the way they do that. Um, Therefore, we should work, speak out, strive, and fight for the redemption of all the peoples of the world, as it is written, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the feelings of the stranger, having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. Then the power of your rule will repair the world, and all the creatures of flesh will call on your name, as it is written, a time is coming, declares my eternal God, when I will send a famine upon the land, not a hunger for bread or a thirst for water, but for hearing the words of the Eternal One. So let justice well up like water, righteousness like an unfailing stream, and then we will all sing a new song. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Let them learn no longer ways of war, and let us say, Hallelujah. That's brand new, everybody. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which, um, do you follow what I'm saying? It's like. Sure, but it's made It's made of the not brand new, the same way the rabbis made what they made out of the not brand new. And this is one of the reasons I I personally love this Haggadah, because it's a contemporary Haggadah that's doing it in in the stream of expanding on the story, using light. So that's what I wanted to share with you. It's such a perfect paragraph for us. And now when I do this Haggadah with people who aren't familiar with Haggadah, it's the Haggadah. We've gone from the particular to the universal. I love it. But the universal threads are already in there in our tradition. Joan and then Steve. I want to give credit to Art Waskow's Freedom Seder. 
Which we talked about that last week. Oh, okay. And uh, let's mention it. I talked last week, I started the class by dedicating the class to Rabbi Arthur Waskell, hmm. who in his uh, apartment in Washington, D.C., when he was still a secular radical history professor uh, in 1969, 60, uh, um, uh, eight, he wrote it in 69. But it was, he, his inspiration was in 1968 because it was right before Passover. Martin Luther King had been assassinated 10 days earlier, and the federal army was on the streets of Washington okay. imposing a curfew as Washington burned. What do you want to add to that? I, I just want to add that his Dianu, for example, um, he does a litany of, and if you had ended uh, police brutality but not done this, and if you could end, right. you know, and, and he does, he includes some very current. Explicit references to police brutality. That's to, right. To, uh, to um, um, you know, various protests. Absolutely. And, so, and and I just want to tag on that I I, re I brought this in '73 to my home and read aloud this and 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 and, and handed it out and had everyone reading the this litany of of, of um, kind of countercultural images in front of my father who was a manager of a uh, factory and, and, and national advisor to uh, a company that later was trust busted. Um, and he had busted union uh, strikes and things like that. And we were talking about the, you know, the opposite and, 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 you know, kind of in his face about it. And how did that work out for you? <laughs> well, he met silence and then we went on and had the, you know, the matzah. I understand. And that's a good Seder. But uh, yes, it was an amazing experience to, so when to Sensitized. That's right. Arthur speaks about this. I said this uh, on the CD that I made with Kim and Reggie Harris. We taped Arthur talking about when he became a Jew. Mm. And it was at that moment because he said he looked out. It was Passover. Mm -hmm. He was doing his like Passover thing. He looked out at the streets and there were fires and troops on the streets. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, that's Pharaoh's army. Mm -hmm. And it was the beginning of his journey to become a rabbi. And he wrote then something called the Freedom Seder, which was not the first new Haggadah, because I've explained in 1940 there was already a new Haggadah, and some new ones had been perhaps written, but was a transformative one, because he used it the next year in 1969 in a church basement at a Seder with like 800 people that were African-American and white and Jewish and Christian, and he, well, he called it his Freedom Seder. A very, uh, uh, and did you want to add anything about that, Joan? Well, he came to our campus, University of Rochester, in 1970 to lead a protest in which we held plaques. So that's when you met Arthur? Quoting Isaiah, yes. We quoted Isaiah and, and, and Tabor. Mike Tabor was with him. Uh -huh. And uh, we, we carried placards um, quoting Isaiah, thou shalt not destroy the uh, trees of thine enemy. And it was a protest against the... the uh, Dow Chemicals presence on campus creating napalm for yes, the Yes, a napalm War. protest, yes. Thanks for remembering that. It was, the, it was the first time I really connected Judaism with a current social consciousness and a, an action that I could take to be Jewish. And, and that's, that, that is Rabbi Arthur Watzkow's, uh, he was, he's really like the initiator of that contemporary approach to Judaism. Steve, and then I'll recognize the other people who... Yes. Um, and I noticed in this Haggadah that the, the Magid is the text from the Torah. Yes. But the, the Maxwell House and others use these Midrashim, 
Right. So why did the rabbis, while we're, while we're sort of speculating about how they um, created the initial text right. version, why do you think they chose these more difficult to grasp midrashim as opposed to the direct story? So I'm going to talk about that in a couple minutes. Let me just hear what these other comments were, and then I want to go in that direction. Um, Arthur is still still has been doing for years, sending out mm-hmm. supplements. Arthur's prolific. Mm-hmm. He's amazing. <laughs> Look up prolific in the dictionary, there's Arthur. <laughs> but if you go to theshalomcenter.org, he just sent, You'll find everything there. You'll find everything, but just today he sent out a thing specifically about er, including Earth Day in the Seder and four different things and suggestions for how to use it in the Seder. Right, because um, <clears throat> Friday the 22nd is Earth Day, and Friday night is the Passover Seder. Uh. <clears throat> so that calls to us, right. right? That'll call to us to say, how shall we integrate Earth Day into our Festival of Liberation today? Mm-hmm. It's not difficult. Because, if you recall, Passover is intentionally placed as the Festival of Spring, and as a celebration of the Earth blooming. So you really just don't have to reach very far because mm-hmm. Passover operates on so many levels. And so consciousness of the entire ecosystem is a natural next step also in our um, continuing uh, re- reinvention, reinterpretation of the festival. Gail, you wanted to share something. Yeah, I lived in Baltimore at the time of the riots, and Baltimore burnt also quite bad. You were in Baltimore at the time. I was in Baltimore. Mm. Wow. In fact, at one point I was told by my boss I'd better leave work now because the writing was so bad. Mm. Um, But um, it was unforgettable to be walking down streets that were lined by uniformed army, National Guard, holding rifles. With bayonets. Well. Mm-hmm. bayonets. Hold on, Stu. I want to talk about that with a little, bayonets. then I'll recognize exactly. you. Exactly, exactly. And thinking this was against citizens of my country. So you were having a similar experience. Well, you know, I was at that time very non-Jewish. I understand. But when I think of Arthur doing this, it's like, yeah, it was it was nakedly, nakedly Pharaoh. I don't know. I don't know the words for it. It was an unfair. Arthur didn't experience. have the words for it either, but it happened it was to be Passover. So and he was at his Seder, looking yeah. out his window. Yeah, I, that's, that was Isn't the that image intense? I just had. I remember walking I think he was past living in Washington. And being yes. afraid. Yes. yes. You know, afraid of them, myself. And they were there theoretically to protect me. Right, but, the white I mean, person. my God, yeah. they were my army against my citizens. It was horrible. Yeah. Mm. And uh, uh, I want to expand on that a little bit, which is to say that in the lore, that. This is fact, but it becomes lore, Be, uh, which is that Martin Luther King, who was assassinated ten days, just 10 days before Passover that year, had been invited and was planning to attend the Seder mm. at Abraham Joshua Heschel, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel's house, because mm. they were colleagues and good friends in the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel was a professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary in Manhattan. And so the fact, um, King had accepted the invitation to the, so King was planning to attend a Seder mm-hmm. that year, but was assassinated and had gotten up on, you know, that in the church on his last night and said, I've been to the mountaintop. Mm-hmm. Who's he aligning, who's he 
comparing himself to? Moses. Moses. And I've seen the promised land. That's what Moses does before he dies. And I may not get there with you. So the resonances are so overwhelming for anyone who is already carrying this story with them, which is certainly the African Americans. And certainly anyone attending to Jewish life at that point. That the confluence, that's why Kim and Reggie and I made that CD, the Let My People Go CD. You know, we have a picture of Heschel and King uh, in, the, in the CD booklet because we dedicated it to their memory because it was, it's just so potent. Oh, yes, uh, Stu. I was just trying to think of what good, certainly there are issues that are on today. For instance, so many different, uh, when a black person goes to jail, his level or her level of incarceration is very different from a white person who does the same thing. And we also have the infractions of what's going on in the voting rights. So there are areas that, that our freedom, our sense of freedom is being taken away bit by bit by what's, and we're, we're all overwhelmed by this stuff that's going on here. And, and to try and get some issues that could be very powerful for the Seder would be very, very useful. Well, that's what we're doing. Okay, so it, it's important to prepare for Passover so that you're not coming into that Seder cold. And we're doing that right now. The issues are multiform. I mean, it's like, how many? I, I don't know, there's no end to the list. How do we relate to uh, the refugee crisis in the world right now? How do we relate to the environmental issues? How do we relate to the Black Lives Matter movement? And then Israel. Where do we bring Israel into this? Both acknowledging historically that we're in our holy land. And then how do we uphold the principles of our tradition in our ancestral homeland? Like the, so it's your Seder, gang. Go for it. Whoever expands upon the story is worthy of praise. That's the instruction. Um, and what makes it a Seder is the order of ritual, the telling of the story, and the expanding upon the story. It certainly is a... Mm, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Plastic. Or Pla yeah, there's, it's elastic. such an elastic, amazing container for every generation. Um, and it's up, but it's up to us to the whole door of our door. It's up to us. So let's address what Steve was saying. Unfortunately, I don't have enough copies of a traditional Haggadah to show you, to compare this to. But go back to page 46. As I've described, the, um, the rabbis, in setting up the telling of the story, want this to be a, a discussion. And so one of the things the rabbis do is they have, a they have a debate in their way of having a debate of having two different versions of what it means to be slaves. Right at the beginning. The first one on page 46 says, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. We know what that story is. We were physically enslaved. But then Rav in the Talmud says, no, from the beginning our ancestors worshipped idols. That was our enslavement. So right from, now worshipping idols means, in their context, not that you just have the wrong God. It means that you're bound to an illusion. You're not living in the spiritual truth. 
Right? The spiritual truth is that we're, we're people of infinite possibility because we're created by a God of infinite possibility. Um, so was our enslavement initially because we weren't connected to the deepest truths? Is that what allowed us to become enslaved? Or was our enslavement a physical enslavement during which we forgot, because of our crushing oppression, the, the truth about us and our nature, that God wants us to be infinitely expanding? There's not an answer to that and question. How are they connected? Those two things are connected. Exactly. My point is, in the dialectic of debate, the rabbi set up right from the start, what's it mean to be enslaved? And what's the origin of our enslavement? Is it economic? Is it psychological? Is it spiritual? Well, the answer, of course, is going to be yes. It's yes. You know, and because you have to address it on every level of experience. Um, you know, they said they could take the slaves out of Egypt, but they couldn't take Egypt out of the slaves. That's a, that's a problem that you encounter all the time. Mm -hmm. They also say, um, there's a famous saying from the Maharal, the uh, Rabbi Judah Lowe of Prague, who says, and I'll, I'll paraphrase, um, even in, even in the depths of slavery, in our hearts we were free. Mm. Right? That can also be true. You know, in our century, we look to stories like Nelson Mandela's, uh, you know, uh, and other sources of inspiration of people who withstood unbelievable mistreatment and retained their inner core of, of freedom, uh, freedom to choose who they were going to be moment to moment. Uh, so, Carol? I know this is apropos, I'm not exactly sure how, but the day after the um, Brussels bombing, yeah. I went into, I teach at a college, um, and I went into my classes and I said that I wanted to honor the people in Brussels and that I thought we should take some time to talk about how we were personally affected by something happening far away. And I was expecting, you know, all, the, all these kind of things about terrorism. Nobody talked about anything but their own personal lives. Hmm. And they opened up in ways that most of them said later that they never had in front of a group of people wow. about their, their stories. They needed so badly to do that before, it seemed to me, before they could even get to something happening outside themselves. That's so important. Mm. Mm. So, the Hasidic, some, I don't know which Hasidic rabbi it is, said that Pesach, the name Pesach, which means to skip over or pass over, can be parsed as Pesach, the mouth speaks. And, who, hmm? who, said, who said that? We studied that. I'll find it for you. Uh, a Hasidic rabbi. Okay. <laughs> I don't have the source with me. Okay. Pesach. <clears throat> that, this, that the first step of liberation is that you speak your story. You open your mouth mm -hmm. and you tell your story to someone who can receive it. You become aware of the narrative <clears throat> of your life. You take ownership of the narrative. Isn't that beautiful? Mm -hmm. Because Pesach, the Seder, mm -hmm. is a telling. And so that gets us to reflect on the power of 
each person's story being told as the beginning of their liberation. Because if you have no way to tell it, you have no way to take ownership of it. Um, and so, Pesach. So they also use another word play. That Sipur Lisaper, which is to tell, like Lahagid, Haggad is to tell, Sipur is a story, that Sapir is sapphire. So that in the telling of the story, our awareness can crystallize like sapphire. That's Lady Yitzhak, we just did that. And I saw it in, um, in uh, the Sfat Emet. In, um, so it's a trope that more than one Hasidic rabbi used. Yeah. Um, and so both of those are word plays in the classic Jewish way to indicate that there's something about opening your mouth, telling the story, that allows you to start on your journey. Make a gem. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. So again... Those of us in the uh, therapy world and who are in the helping professions, who, who especially are uh, using the talking cure, right? It's the talking cure. It's like you tell the story so that you can be liberated from it and also so that it becomes your story and not something you're oppressed by. But until you tell it, even if you tell it to God and you never say it to another human being, I suppose that's entirely possible, it, you can't leave your slavery. That is not meant to discount all the other levels of fierce suppression, you know, physical, economic, but it's one of the keys to liberation. There was an op-ed in the Times, I guess Tuesday, by a a young doctor who found himself listening to somebody's story and reflecting that in the rush to diagnose, they're not... Taught, they don't have the time to listen to the human being oh. and how important he found because he found, there was nothing he could do to help the man. He was an old man and he was reaching the end of his life. But the importance of listening. Yeah. Which will get us right back to the leisure that the free person mm-hmm. has right. that the slave to doesn't listen. have. To so therefore... Physical liberation and psychological liberation are in, inevitably intertwined. Mm. Joya? Mm. My dad, uh, my goddad, was a doctor. And uh, at Cornell, it's like you, I know there's something in the story, but you know it's... Part you will of find it. out when you say yeah, it. But I, as we say it, and there's another thing that has to do with that saying. And he'd be asked to go down to Cornell, be, um, down to Bellevue, because Bellevue had a lot of diseases and infections and things that none of these higher class, you know, hospitals had. So they wanted to teach all the doctors the whole gamut of what a human being suffers in this city. This is New York. Wow. So he'd go down. I remember he'd be gone for for that whole night or whatever. And what happened was, and I didn't know this until another man told me in an Italian class that I was teaching at a college, he happened to be visiting. He said, are you a Timpanel? I said, yes. He says, do you know that your dad never was wrong in the 20 years? I said, no, I don't know anything. <laughs> and he said, this is what happened. He would sit there, and they wouldn't give him the test of the results of what the person had. Right. And he would sit there and say to him, tell me. Mm-hmm. And they would tell him. Very, it's a very... Mm-hmm. Real thing to do, like yeah. tell mm-hmm. me, yeah. and right. he'd be present, and they would tell him 
all kinds of things about their in-laws, about this, right. about, and he would sit there patiently taking what was used to be called a very long intake, a real history, history yeah. a medical, but it was a human history. Right. And he'd listen and listen. He said, I think he has or she has this. And they would write it down. At the end of the session, all the young doctors, they reveal, and in 20 years said, this other doctor, not me or anything, he was never wrong. They'd say, we can't believe it, Tempe, you got it right again. Yeah. And it was because he said, it wasn't me, it was because I listened and I took the time right. to find out mm -hmm. what they thought they had. And then with his expertise, <sighs> that's why we all need each other, friends. <laughs> all of us, we need each other. The lovers, the enemy, we need each other because the one who misses it, the other one gets it. And you say, oh, maybe, and this and that. But if you're not present, so I'm that was, and let me just end with jump. the quote that I was thinking of before. The quote is, speech is not of the tongue, but of the heart. Mm. When one is dumb, one is not dumb in one's tongue, one's dumb in one's heart. Mm. And for the heart to really hear, it need be educated. Mm -hmm. you, there is no such thing as an uneducated heart really loving. The whole thing about the heart is that it has its own ineffable education. The way you talked about God and about human beings. That's an education when you begin to be open to God and, and you, get, you learn, and you really learn because you're learning consciousness, you're learning about your idiocy, yourself, and what you don't. And that's the thing that educates us. And that heart is all of us. We're all in it together. That's mm -hmm. the thing. And creatures, the trees, everything. And that's because we are not dumb here, we're dumb here, and that's what we gotta educate. Mm. We need the lecture. Joan, I'll call you in a minute. Yeah. I wanna say something. Mm. Uh, this is like, we're getting a head start on the best Seder ever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh God, yeah. Um, and and uh, I'm so grateful to you all, because I'll go to my Seder table now with all of this inside me. I don't know exactly how the Seder's gonna right. go, but I'm primed now to be thinking about in every generation, mm -hmm. you know, do you follow what I'm saying? I'm yes. so grateful. Yes. I'm so grateful. Mm -hmm. uh, Joan? Mm -hmm. I just want to say uh, and plead for uh, support for expressive arts in any area where you are when you're voting on your education budgets or wh whatever you're doing. I, I am expressive arts in my being and I have taken it on to really find avenues where I can both teach, lead, and support you know, um, the proliferation of expressive arts. Because the rest of our education, as intellectual as it might be, it, it's, it's not a whole thing. It's just not whole without it. Um, and one of the voluntary things I've taken on is to do this with vets. Um, and that, so that's another thing, to, to the veterans of our wars. But because people who've been so traumatized and damaged deserve our attention and our support to do that. And I'm going to call on Laura and Susan. That's why there's a line in Exodus chapter 6 that you've heard me quote before. Moses comes to the people sent from the burning bush and says, the source of the universe said to me that God's going to liberate you and take you out and bring you to a land of milk and honey. And it says, and the people could not hear Moses because their spirits had been crushed. Um, and uh, so again, the, but the spirit's crushed, but it never dies. 
Uh, Laura? Yeah, so I want to get back to this, the importance of telling your story. Please do. I think about this in terms of writing that very often... Right, you wrote a book. I wrote a book. I know, but is this, are you thinking about that? Because I'm thinking about it. Well, I'm always thinking about it. Okay. And I take it in So, um, what I was thinking about is that very often you don't know what you think until right. you tell it. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. And that's why really like important. That's something I think we'll all right. <laughs> my, my, my buddy over there in the opposite corner. <laughs> you don't know what you think until you have a chance to tell it to somebody yeah, sure. sometimes. To express it in one way or the other. And this genius, this, this genius teaches us to start from the breath yeah. to do it, too. So yeah. Okay, but yeah. Laura, keep going. Thank you. Sorry. So I think about this a lot with writing. You know, mm -hmm. I'll get an idea. I write some articles now for the... National Women's Health Network, so mm. I have to come up with an idea every couple of months. And um, I'll have an idea, and I'll even have, you know, sort of talk to my friends about the idea, even though I've never written it. But once I start writing it is when I really find out what I think. Mm -hmm. I really, and it's every time, it's like I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I write some articles that are like, how to cope with Medicare Part D, and it really <laughs> doesn't, that didn't happen. But the ones that are more... Yeah, put yeah. the legs on it. That's a good article. Before you wrote it, because you had the compassion to write it. Uh -huh. I thought, I can't believe this happened to me, so I better write about this, because there are people in the same situation. But for the articles that I write that are more thought pieces, even though I've maybe discussed it with friends, until I start writing, I don't really know what I want to say and what I have to say. It's, it's a really interesting process. Uh, Thank you, process. It's interesting, and it, yeah, that's right. Thank you. Tell me your name. Thank you. That's Laura Kaplan, Joan Goodman. Meet you later. So, like Joya, my dad was a doctor and a real country doctor who was a brilliant diagnostician who also didn't really, now I'm so aware of the fact that doctors talk to you about your blood tests. They don't talk to you about it, they look at numbers. Mm -hmm. My dad talked to people, mm -hmm. and he diagnosed through the stories mm -hmm. as well. It was really incredible. And um, there was something on Facebook with Helen Keller. I don't mm -hmm. know if you guys saw it. Did you put it on? Yeah, well, um, with it Annie Sullivan and the real, Annie Sullivan, the real Helen Keller, and how she, was teaching her to speak mm -hmm. because of Annie Sullivan's love and her heart and her willingness mm -hmm. to stick with a deaf, dumb, and blind woman, how Helen Keller came to life with words yeah. through that exchange of love. It was a beautiful um, example of what we're talking about right now. From the most impossible thing, what the human heart is capable of. Beautiful. My family needs to hear from me just a second. <laughs> they all right. First book that ever really, yeah, truly moved heart. me, Helen Keller's story. Mm. Really amazing. Really moved me. Mm. I was 12 years old. It's like, mm. yeah. I think okay. Dalai Lama is saying that all the time when he says, teach your children compassion. What he's really saying is if you teach them compassion, 
then you're teaching them to open their hearts because they themselves mm -hmm. can understand something. They understand the other, and it's the road to education, mm -hmm. real mm -hmm. education. So I want to um, reflect on one thing that Laura said, and then I want to address Steve's question. Um, the, the battle for women mm. to get to be in charge of their own lives mm -hmm. and their own bodies mm -hmm. is certainly, why is it called women's liberation? Mm -hmm. You know, it's certainly one of the exodus stories of our time, which we're in the thick of. So, uh, that's a word that people really don't like, women's liberation. liberation. That's they right. Get it. Ooh. That's right. But that's why I said it. I mean, it's Thank a you. perfect name. Okay, so what Steve was asking. But this is what I tell you, the Jewish people, I've always understood as a non-Jew, yeah. I'm a non-Jew, you know, in religion, but I'm a Jew in ways of being. And I've always been attracted to you and everyone, us, because what you do is the most perfect thing. You say, <laughs> this is this, wait a minute, wait a minute, what is this is this? <laughs> what do you mean this is this? <laughs> and then, what do you mean, what do you mean this is this? Right, and there are other people who do that, but very few of them of right. the other religions. It is one of the precious, you got it right in the center. it's such a precious part it of, being, of mm -hmm. Jewish, being Jewish, I it totally is. agree. It is, beautiful. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. From an insider, outsider, yes. Thank you so much. Okay, so look on page, we were on page 46 and 47. I explained how it starts with this, uh, with this, mm, question isn't the right word, this, this, uh, the, what, what does it mean to be enslaved? It starts with that question. And then on the next page, 49, uh, it lists four children, meaning, and how are you going to tell this story to different people at different places in their lives? We're not going to focus on that, because I want you to turn to 40, 52. 52. Mm -hmm. Now, I just want to say about the four, can I say just one thing? Oh, well, then let's back up, and we'll say, Steve, I'll give you a private answer later. <laughs> it's okay, it's okay. No, I... I Go oh, ahead, Laura. That's right, we didn't get to, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Laura. No, I just, not the right I have this problem. <laughs> didn't get to it yet. <laughs> I, I do my Seder with my cousins and their families. Right. They're not... Explorers? Well, they're not even really Jewish identified. Yeah. Um, and some of them aren't even Jewish. Like my cousin Denise, who's my cousin Dan's widow, um, you know, she was raised Catholic. Yeah. So, and they've come up with this Haggadah, which is like for children. But yeah. The kids aren't little anymore, but we're still using it. I keep my mouth shut. And when we get to the four children. Right. And my cousin Susan always is like, well, that's no way to treat somebody who's. Susan's and, just doing her part, yes. Yeah, and then I have to say, well, you know, these are really internalized. I mean, that's always, I'm always trying to find ways in. Right. And only recently have discovered that the younger generation is really appreciative of it. I just thought I should keep my mouth shut because mm -hmm. the, none of them were interested in anything mm -hmm. like But the younger generation is. The, the younger generation, I've heard Amy say to Al, uh, Amy told me, she said to Allison, you better take notes 
I'm what Laura's saying because when she's no longer here, we got to figure out how we're going to do this. <laughs> Y'all are well good. <laughs> which I appreciate. But is that fair for me to say, you know, that yes. you have to see these as in qualities of yourself? So let me explain this too. Uh, not exactly, but yes and. Yes and. Um, okay. Just as the four questions became a fixed thing as opposed to an opening mm-hmm. to yeah. questions, the four children became a fixed thing as opposed to an opening. What the rabbis are trying to do mm-hmm. here, because this is a pedagogical feast, the symposium, is they're saying, you've got to know how to talk to each kind of person. <laughs> right? If, you, if you're telling the story, and here we are in the talking again, not just talk, but reach. Um, and they, they came up. Now, it ha- as it happens, in the Torah, there are four times where it says, and when your child asks you, what is the meaning of this? So they took those four occurrences in Torah, and they said, we'll use this as a way of showing that there are four ways of asking, because the answers are slightly different each time in Torah. Does that make sense, everybody? They find four examples. The rabbinic way is, if something's repeated in Torah, it's repeated for a reason. So then they examine those four examples, and they notice that each response, in each time it comes up as it's talking about Passover, is slightly different from the other responses. And then they go to work doing their thing, which is they say, okay, we're going to say this represents four different kinds of children and how you are to address them so that, you, so that in every generation you tell the story. So now you can treat this as each one of us has different attitudes and learning styles and needs, or who around the table, it, or if you go to Hagadot.com, or if you Google the four sons or the four children, you will find dozens of new interpretations of the four learning styles. The, um, uh, this one's the adolescent, this one is the little child, this one, and so as, as soon as people understand that the rabbis aren't telling us there are four children, the wise, the wicked, the simple, and the one who doesn't know what to ask, <laughs> and you go, well, what are they telling me what to do? And you understand that these are their examples, then you're free to say, what other kind of children are there? And who is this? Who, where are you at this year? And someone could say, I am so feeling so... Um, and I'm hearing this, you know, for, uh, so pessimistic and so hopeless, I don't even know why we're, we're going on. Right? How do you address that child? That's the pedagogical purpose of that page. Is that helpful, Laura, what I'm saying? Um, but isn't this one child? In other words, isn't this all us, all of us? Also, aren't that's we wicked and yes, wise, aren't that's, all of what, us? That's words. my line. Yes, right. yes. Well, that's a good line because yes. it's the truth, <laughs> it's and the yes. experts should answer it. And Let them. Yeah. Jonathan yes. said yes and. And there are things yeah. we don't. There's know not a single interpretation of this no. page. This page is an interpret is an mm-hmm. invitation to expand upon the story, yeah. just like the prime directive of the okay. whole Seder. You like symbols. Right? Yes. I know you love symbols. I love symbols. Well, that's exactly what that means. Because every child is from another, or any way you want to put it. <laughs> every child is one, uh, we are all these things turning. So that we're oh, right. always these things. 
And so if you can figure out how, like even tell a story and then say, all right, who was wise then? And then look, they changed, they became not wise. And all of that can become the whole group and the whole psyche that understands it or doesn't. You know, it's, the, it's consciousness again. So look at what our Haggadah, what Joy and Michael decided to do. Look at page 52. Below the line, the wise child asks, the wicked child asks, the simple child, and they have these questions all through their telling. Isn't that an interesting choice? Beautiful. Four, five. That was their choice to try to show you what's intended here. That's another reason why I like this Haggadah. Six times. Beautiful. Yeah. Look at 53. The silent child is overwhelmed. Right. right. And they also change it. That's why I recommend that you purchase this Haggadah just to enjoy reading oh, it. Yes. Um, and you, Anne and then Amy. You said that in the Torah, four times it says, and a child asks. Okay, shh. Four child, four times in the Torah, three times in Exodus, and once in Deuteronomy. Right. A child asks. When, when your child asks you, okay. what does this mean? Oh. You but shall my say. Qu- my question was, are you, are you saying that each time the child is asking the same question? It's asking the question, what does this mean? Yeah. Because okay. over and over in the Torah, it describes how you're supposed to uh, observe Passover, along with the other festivals. There's a rendition in Exodus. There's one in Leviticus. There's one in Numbers. There's one in Deuteronomy. And as it happens, in all of those renditions of the holidays, Three times in Exodus and once in Deuteronomy, it says, and when your child asks you, what is the meaning of this, you shall tell them. And the answer is a little different each time. So does that explain it? Yes. Yeah, and so they used that as a way to create a template of four. And then they assigned names to the characteristics to the different four questioners. Um, And it's a beautiful piece of rabbinic um, play on the Torah. Does that make sense? Yes. Cool. And to, and to your point on that, if you kind of leaf through this, they, they go wise, wicked, simple, silent, then they change it. Yeah. Uh, thoughtful, skeptical, direct. Oh, right. Look at 54. Silent, silent and then six different times. challenging, direct, and silent. So they, 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 um, they change it up to show that it's not... Michael and Joy, again, this, mm-hmm. see, this is why, this is why I, I guess, I guess this is why I, um, um, admire this Haggadah, because they didn't do something new that was discontinuous from the text. They took the four children and they start expanding on it, right? And so no longer is it the wicked, they say the skeptical. And then no longer is it the skeptical, it's, what's the next one? Um, The challenging child. And then they go... And then, innocent, vengeful, right? I think that's a brilliant way to draw us deeper and deeper in. They're related to where you are in the story. So that's, that's again, you know, the problem with this Haggadah is that the leader has to, like, be ready in advance because it's going to take you, like, two weeks to do this whole Haggadah. So you have to be ready. But the advantage of it is, again, the way they, the way they have drawn it out in 
these ways that are contemporary yet connected. And again, that's why I, that's why I bought 20 of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we use it at my house. How you know. fast can we get them? <laughs> oh, I, oh, there's plenty between now and next uh, weekend. You can definitely get them. Inquiring Minds would probably order them, and then we wouldn't have to, you know, we could get them locally through Inquiring Minds. Sure, sure. However you want to do it. But you should, should certainly get them within a week's time if you want yeah. to. Cool. Um, but like I said, it's, it requires a leader who's already acquainted mm-hmm. him or herself with this text because it's not. Otherwise, you'll starve before you get. You'll starve, it. right? <laughs> and I went to the theater in college. I just have to tell the story. Um, I was at the University of Chicago, and a number of the people I knew had gone to yeshiva. So we had this seder where at midnight. We still hadn't eaten yet yeah. because everybody had a song about every goddamn Haggadah. <laughs> we were literally standing on our sh- chairs singing the International because <laughs> we were quite drunk at that point. <laughs> and the building super came up. Like, what the hell is going on here? And then apologized the next day when he found out it was a religious. Yeah, it was was even funnier. Oh, that's a great but story. But it was. It was midnight, and we still hadn't gotten to dinner. I thought, <laughs> I'm going to die here. <laughs> that's great. Now, when you look at this telling, if you... Um, so, back on page 52. The traditional, the rabbinic Haggadah, the rabbinic telling, does this odd thing but I think I've understood it, which is, if you've ever looked in the Maxwell House Haggadah, they don't actually tell the story. Instead, they take some verses from Torah and they riff on each clause. The verses from Torah are the verses you see on the top of 52 and 53. My father was a wandering Aramean. He went down to Egypt with meager numbers and sojourned there, but there he became a great and very populous nation. See, that's Deuteronomy 26, 5. The next line is, The Egyptians dealt harshly with us and oppressed us. They imposed heavy labor upon us. 26, 6. Um, and then on 55 at the top, it says, We cried to the Eternal One, the God of our ancestors, who heard our plea and saw our plight, our misery and our oppression. That's verse 7. Then there's this picture of the burning bush, which I love. And, uh, um, picture of the burning bush with the matzo on the Yeah, the artist. Uh, and then on 59 it says, Then the Eternal One freed us from Egypt by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm and awesome power, and by signs and portents. The whole rabbinic telling is an expansion of those four verses. So rather than tell the biblical story in classic rabbinic fashion, they take a little of the place in Deuteronomy where the whole story is told in four verses and then they expand each uh, line. Now, as I've said many times, if you are a learned Jew in rabbinic methodology, it makes sense. If you're not, it's actually nonsense, right? So you read through the Maxwell House Haggadah, and it's like, where's the story? Uh 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 
They went too high. They went too high, but not necessarily for the people of right. their, their moment, right. right? For whom this was the accepted form of discourse. Oh. We don't share that form of discourse. Oh. And so it becomes obscure. That makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, again, contemporary Haggadahs have done is restored the biblical story, because that's how we, right. we're, not rabbinic, we're not rabbinic thinkers. And they don't think linearly. They don't have, they're, they're not concerned about narratives that, like, in the same way that we are. They're happy to go all over. And so the other th- reason, so that's the main reason. Uh, the other reasons are they chose those four verses because those are the four verses which, when you co- which in Deuteronomy it says, and when you come into the land and you are free, you shall bring the first fruits of your harvest to the, to the place that God will show you, to the Kohen, the priest at that time, and you shall lay down the, your offering before them and say, my father was a wandering Aramean. And you say these lines. In other words, in the Bible, this is a credo. This is what you say as you bring the harvest of the land that you've been brought to and that you are free in to the priest in gratitude to God. So those four verses are not accidental. In fact, they are the central declaration that we're supposed to make when we're free. Does that make sense, everybody? Of course. Steve? And the, and the common person knew, knew these Every common person, knew that. every common person. That's the secret. Right. Every that's common person, that's right. Every common person knew these four verses. If they had to memorize anything, it was these verses, because that's what they had to recite when they went to the temple. So the rabbis want to capitalize on what the people know. Right? Isn't that cool? In addition, it seems like a rabbinic preference that Moses is not mentioned in these verses. Because there is a there is an antipathy to making Moses the hero. Because God is the one who freed us, not Moses was God's agent. And the rabbis felt strongly about that. Whereas we want to hear the hero story. But for the rabbis, they wanted to actually downplay the hero story. Uh, uh, but I think most important is what Steve said. This was the credo that everybody knew. But it is a curiosity that Moses' name is not mentioned in the traditional Haggadah. That can't be an accident. You know, that must have had an intention behind it, though I can't pinpoint what that intention is. Um, uh, Bob? And for whatever it's worth, God is not mentioned in the story of uh, Esther. Right. That's right. That I don't know what that means. I don't know, but it certainly is something yeah, to think about, isn't it? Kind of Maybe they. So again, That's again, I bet someone, and I'll I'll do a little research. I bet someone has mastered the rabbinic text enough to have, to have found more about this. I just don't know myself. Isn't this a hide and seek, like man looking for God, humans, yeah, and women and men, and God looking for us, and it's sort of. And so then there's the telling. And so that's why they replaced that traditional telling with uh, uh, the narrative, because that's what we're, we're, not, we're not able to penetrate the rabbinic verses, because we've never brought our first fruits and made that declaration. 
when in fact in, in biblical and rabbinic times it was a central piece of liturgy. And we have much more access now to the, to the text and the story probably than right. the, man on, the man and woman on the street in the second century. True, also we have these big printed books. We have Google. We all going to bring our computers to the table? Oh, yeah. beautiful. Yeah, our, yeah, bring your smartphones to the table. I'm sure, just like on the high holidays, there was a lot of press because uh, a young rabbi in New York uh, had a service where people were supposed to bring their smartphones, and uh, he was, I don't know, it was for the smartphone folks, uh, a, a religious service where it becomes something you use. And you so you tell the story. And uh, there are some beautiful additions in here. You know the section of the Ten Plagues where the rabbis dictated that we take a drop out of our cup for each of the plagues so that we lessen our cup of joy because of the suffering of the Egyptians. So again, the rabbis are sensitive to that in the story, the same sort of thing that bugs us, so many of us, uh, um, bug them. But then we get to page 69. I have to say, I have little Ten Plagues finger puppets. Yes. Yes. Which are really nice. Ten Plagues finger puppets, yes. Good for all ages. Good for all ages. I pass them out. I always get stuck with death of the firstborn because nobody wants that one. I was looking at this before, and the art green little piece sidebar to Dianu on yes. 69. Yeah. Do you want to read? Okay, so. That's, that's what we're studying you know, in my class. Oh, that's great. Great. So, everybody, look at page 69. Let's end by reading two of my favorite uh, uh, sidebar readings in this. Ellen, do you want to read the one on the right? Sure. So, the word Dianu means that would have been sufficient. So if, if God had done only this and not the next thing, it still would have been enough all the way to the end. So the verse that, that proclaims that it would have been enough had God helped us reach Mount Sinai without giving us the Torah makes no sense according to Rabbi Levi Yitzhak Berdichev. Jerome, your guy. What would have been the purpose of coming to Sinai if there was to be no Torah, no revelation? The answer, he says, lies in what happened to Israel in the three days of preparation for the great event. Each one present, he says, and of course all of us were present at Sinai, sincerely and deeply opened his or her heart to Torah, mm -hmm. casting aside all material concerns in order to hear God's word. Then we were all able to discover the entire, entire Torah already implanted within our own hearts. Each of us contains Torah within us. It is only our enslavement to externals that keeps us from turning inward mm -hmm. to find it. The promise of revelation was enough, he says, to evoke this discovery, revelation from within. Beautiful, beautiful. And then my, my dear friend, Sheila, Rabbi Sheila Weinberg, wrote this one, which I read over and over again. In what sense is each moment of liberation enough? Dayenu. Dayenu signifies deep acceptance and gratitude. We acknowledge the present moment. In the affirmation of Dayenu, we are fully present to the preciousness of each act of redemption and care, dividing the sea, leading us across, caring for us in the desert. We receive each moment with love. This acceptance allows us to move to the next moment and receive the waiting gift. When we greet each moment with conditions, judgments, and expectations, 
well, this really isn't quite where we need to be, or <laughs> wait a second, this is not what we were promised, or hey, what's coming next? Our expectations keep us tense. We are not free. We are not available to receive the next moment. Our fantasies about the past and our desire to control the future cut us off from the wonders of this moment. They shut us in a prison of disappointment and suffering. Dayenu is a great liberator. It is a jolt into the presence of awe, compassion, attention, and freedom. A whole other level of liberation when we can say this moment is Dayenu. Yeah. We're free. Like in every moment. Every moment. Every moment we can liberate ourselves by embracing and saying, Dayenu. It's raining outside. Uh, it's raining outside. Dayenu. So, in addition to all the historical and, and psychological journeys we have to be on, there's this other level of liberation which is the le level of being able to embrace the present moment. Equanimity. I, hmm? Equanimity. Uh, equanimity. So I, I love that one. Did you want to add anything, Joya? My great-grandmother used to say over anything, even things that didn't go well, she'd say, Signora vi ringrazio. Is that Dayeno? She'd say, thank you, God. Yes. Thank you, yeah. God. Yeah. Well, that's, oh, I understand. That's exactly. Yeah. And oh. when you do that practice... It's Baruch Hashem. It's, it's amazing. It is amazing. She was the most giving wonderful, incredible human being, and she'd say, it's a fantastic thing to be in. It's like Jews who say, Baruch Hashem. How's it going? Baruch Hashem means, praise be God. Praise be God. When I call my son, I'd say, so how are things? How's the baby? Baruch Hashem. Thank God. Thank God. Thanks God. Thanks God. That's my grandmother. Yeah, thanks God. Thanks, God. That's um, perfect. Uh, we're almost out of time. Joan? Yeah, I, I love the specificity of this uh, pronouncement that Dayenu is awe, compassion, attention, and freedom. We have to have the awe. freedom to receive these things. We have to pay attention right. to them carefully. Compassion etymologically means with emotion. Mm -hmm. So sitting with someone with compassion is to share their emotion. And finally, awe. I mean, I, I reverse them because the awe is what you sit in when you've done all these things. Awe. Just awe. Isn't that beautiful? Mm -hmm. So Sheila wrote some Torah, and then we parse it to get more Torah. It's like that's, the, that's, what, we do. that's what we do. Torah begets Torah. That's right. <laughs> turn it and turn it. Oh, thank you. Oh, I'm excited. Oh, thank Carol. Could, could I have a travel blessing? Yes. Carol is leaving today? Tonight, yeah. <laughs> for her annual teaching job in Paris. Wow. Yay. May Paris not only ninth be... Year, ninth year. Ninth wow. year. So may you travel safely. May Paris be a very safe place for you and all who dwell in it. City of life. And uh, may Paris in the springtime bring joy to your hearts and everyone together. And may you come back to us in peace and safety. Amen. Sending, sending. And we should also announce Sheffa's workshop. workshop. Yes, definitely. Thank you. <laughs> so the synagogue's communal Seder is next Saturday night. The following weekend, the seventh and eighth night of Passover, we have Rabbi Sheffa Gold, who is my dear colleague and really master teacher, teaching a workshop here mm -hmm. called The Language of Love, Exploring the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs, mm -hmm. each of the five Megillas, the five scrolls that are part of the 
writing section of the Hebrew Bible are associated with a different holiday. The Megillah Esther, the Scroll of Esther is Purim, and Ecclesiastes is Sukkot, and, and Lamentations is Tisha B'Av, and, um, uh, um, well, Ruth, Ruth is Shavuot, and Song of Songs is Passover. Song of Songs is about, come my beloved, let's go down to the garden, for the rains have passed, and the spring has come, and the sound of the turtle dove is heard in the land, and it's all the language of love and spring. So this is another level of liberation. Why did the rabbis assign Song of Songs to Passover? Uh, if we fall in love with the world, that's our deepest place of freedom, right? We're one, we're at one in, in joy and with, with the world. And so Shefa has focused on this deeply. She's written a book about it. She's recorded a CD with her chants from the Song of Songs, and she's, you're on it, that's right. And uh, she's going to teach a weekend on the Song of Songs. So Friday night, we're not going to meet before this, so Friday night, the 29th of April, Shabbat services at 7.30, Chef is going to be leading them, I'll be here. That's open for everybody, even if you don't take the weekend. So if you can come that night, you'll experience some of her chants. And then those who've signed up for the entire weekend will spend the entire weekend learning and singing and chanting with their okay so you still have time to sign up the early bird discount ends tomorrow and uh, uh, but the registration is still open okay yes yes um i would like a copy of this page with the sheila weinberg i wondered if anybody else wanted to do i have copy in my um uh i've already copied it let me find it and if you can hang around for five minutes, I will. I will bring out a bunch of copies. We don't have class next week. We don't have class next week. Or the following week. Or the following week. Or the following week. I can't remember. 69. 69. I won't be here that first week in May. I'm going to L.A. and San Francisco. Oh, that's great. That's great. Here's how the class, here's how the class is going to run. Not next Thursday, because I want to be getting ready for Seder, and I just didn't, I didn't want to teach another class next Thursday. The Thursday after that is during Passover. I like to, like, chill a little bit. So, um, so but the following week, which is May the 5th? Yeah. Yes, that's when I'm getting back. In the we have class. We have class on the 12th. We have class on the... And then, and then I'm going... So, it's all on the flyer in the lobby. Rabbi, special class on May 5th. Thank you. I forgot. Listen, on May 5th, Bob, whose, whose, whose avocation is the history of, of coins and money, has, uh, it, the 5th is um, uh, Israeli Independence Day. Oh, I thought that was the 12th. Have I got that right? I told you the 12th, yes, didn't I? Twelfth, Bob. That's what I said. On the twelfth. On the the fifth is Yom Hashoah. On the twelfth is Israeli Independence Day. Bob's latest lecture is biblical images on money. And uh, so we're going to enjoy that as part of our class on the twelfth of May. That's right. Mm -hmm. And nothing on the, I have no class on the 19th. That's right. I'm going to, Barbara David Ginsburg invited me to their synagogue in Portland, Oregon. What's the name again? Huh? What's the name again? 
What? Portland place. The synagogue? I forget. There's no, um, no class on the 19th. Right, but all the flyers have all the dates on them. They're in the lobby. Okay, pick up a flyer. Okay. The 5th Cinco de Mayo, do we have margaritas? You bring them. Non-alcoholic ones. Yes, wait here for the copies. I'll go get some copies of that page. Get some juice. Um, yeah. Two quick questions. You can bring them back from LA. That's right. I'm only going to be in LA for two days. Is, um, and I'm going up in the but not always during the but not always during the Torah. I won't be back. I'm coming back. But not necessarily during the Parsha of the Torah. No, that I understand. Always during the Parsha of I'm going to order this, but could I borrow yeah, this? I won't probably be functioning yes. on the 6th. Gotcha. Yes. Well, have a wonderful trip. Yes. Uh, I need it back for my Seder next week. Sure. Here. Here. I'll go get some copies, and then we'll meet. It was shocking. I had to buy some I started writing them down and discovered that almost every page I'll go get this reading. Starting on page 52 is verse 5.